This podcast is produced by the Center for Deployment Psychology at the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. In addition, references to any specific companies, products, processes, or services does not necessarily constitute or imply endorsement by the Uniformed Services University, the Department of Defense, or the U.S. government. Welcome to CDP's podcast, Practical for Your Practice. Where we give you actionable intel to support what you do. One colleague to another. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to season four. I can't believe it's season four of Practical for Your Practice. And uh, happily joined today by co-host Dr. Kevin Holloway. How's it going, Kevin? Great. How are you doing, Jenna? I'm doing really well. Um, it, it has have, been quite a ride, right? I mean, like it's been quite a ride. four seasons. Yeah. Who, who and, would have thunk when we first started? And we have some we have some good news, bad news coming into season right. four. Um, the bad news, which is good and, and has good news in, in it, is that uh, Dr. Andy Santanella, who is by far one of the best podcast hope hosts anybody could ask for, um, is stepping away for a time to move on to some really exciting opportunities for him um, and is unable to support the podcast, is going to definitely come back as a guest, which we're, which we're very excited about. Very. So that's the bad news. The good news is we've had the very talented, incredible, funny, and engaging now there's a lot of pressure. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Corinne Lefkowitz, join us as our third host. So welcome to Practical for Your Practice host, hosting Dr. Lefkowitz. Thank you. I like to think I'm a uh, longtime guest, first time host on the right. podcast. <laughs> so I'm delighted to be here. And I did get the okay and the approval from Andy to to momentarily step into his role. So I feel like I have his blessing <laughs> to join you. We're just hoping you can also maybe just wear the plaid shirts if you don't mind. That would, that would help it feel like we were more consistent. <laughs> Do what I can. Um, in addition to Corinne, we have, uh, again, a, a repeat guest, a longtime guest, Dr. Kelly Crestman joining us as well. So hi, Kelly, how's it going? Going okay. I am a longtime guest. You are. You are yeah. a frequent flyer. We like yeah. our frequent flyers. Yeah. Um, but there, and there's a really important reason why why Kelly is here today, and and Corinne is going to certainly add to this mix, because the topic of today's podcast is uh, one that comes up for us in consultation repeatedly. Uh, as as you know, just to frame this, Kelly, Kevin, and I are consultants for prolonged exposure therapy, the EBP prolonged exposure therapy for PTSD. And Corinne Lefkowitz is a trainer and consultant for cognitive processing therapy, which is another evidence-based uh, psychotherapy for PTSD. Corinne, by the way, also does PE. Um, and so the, the topic we wanted to talk about that pops up for us often or pops up for consultees is what happens if my client dissociates? How do I handle dissociation in the context of wanting to provide an EBP for PTSD and, you know, it doesn't throw things totally off the rails. So um, that's why we've got this sort of quorum of folks here today. Uh, and, that, and that's where we're going to leap off and talk about. And ironically, it, it might come up in consultation more often than it comes up in therapy, right? But <laughs> well, let's 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 actually go there, right? So right. first of all, can can we define it? Like, what does it mean when our when our 
consultants come to us and, and use that phrase dissociation, um, what do they mean? You know, what just for our listeners, like we want to kind of start on the same page. What is dissociation and what isn't? And maybe I'll throw that one to Kelly. If you want to be technical about it, you can go to DSM-5 and you can look at the uh, how the DSM-5 defines dissociation. And since we're talking about PTSD treatments, we'll look under the PTSD diagnosis. So there's a couple of kinds of dissociation that DSM recognizes as potentially being part of PTSD. So depersonalization is one. Uh, and this is sort of feeling detached or uh, like you're an outside observer of your own experiences or outside of your body, kind of an out-of-body experience. And then derealization is more like out there. I'm, I'm sort of detached from out there. Everything feels kind of unreal or I'm not connected to it in some way, sort of like other people might also describe that as numbing. And and we do think I think a lot of people think of dissociation as sort of an extreme form of numbing in some ways, although when we get asked about it in consultation, that's not usually what people are asking about. They're asking about uh, things that look a little bit scarier, like people becoming uh, emotionally overwhelmed, which is not dissociation or people becoming really uh, uh, unable to respond to the therapist, which might be dissociation. Uh, it's like that spectrum, right? That we forget about falls on a spectrum, just like so many other qualities and symptoms and characteristics. And, you know, it's mildest form that is not necessarily even unhealthy can be momentarily losing touch with where you are right now and being on kind of autopilot doing routine things. And then of course, at the other extreme is um, dissociative identities and multiple personalities and things like that. But there's everything in between and um, my point was going to be that I think what we ask, get asked about in consultation so often is more about worries about that extreme end, forgetting mm -hmm. that it so often falls on the milder end of the spectrum. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's true. I think we see mild forms of dissociation a lot and probably don't even recognize them because they're momentary. I mean, the best people always want therapy examples, but the best example I can give you for dissociation that you can look at is uh, if you remember uh, the movie with uh, Tom Cruise, the, the Born on the Fourth of July movie. Remember that movie? Uh, do you remember the scene where he was... Uh, at a 4th of July celebration and he was getting honored and he was in his, I think he was even in his uniform and, and they were playing the music and, and he was sort of in the process of doing something. And then you hear this baby cry in, in the audience and all of a sudden kind of his face becomes really blank and, and he's, and he's not paying attention to anything that's going on around him. And we, we know because we've seen the movie that he's recalling an experience where he heard a similar sound in a in a traumatic setting, in a traumatic event. And it, it lasted seconds and then it was done. And after he was dissociative for this short little period of time, he he got back on board with what they were doing. Now, his mood had changed. Everything had changed. The meanings of things had changed for him after that dissociative experience. But it was so momentary that most of the people in the audience, probably if that were a real thing that were happening and the audience were watching, they wouldn't have noticed that he was dissociative. They wouldn't have said, oh, look, what happened to Tom up there? You know, that was maybe <laughs> one of my clarifying questions, too, is like, 
when does it tend to happen and, and what's the function? Like, does it have, what's the function of it in terms of like for the patient? And there's not one answer to that, but like, it doesn't just happen. You know, usually there's a reason it's happening and there's something about it that is working for the patient or, you know, not really truly, yeah, yeah. but it, it's serving a function. I think that's important to remember. I think dissociation does serve a function for the patient. And, and when we think about people who are highly dissociative or who dissociate in response to things that are painful, is that that's a skill they developed. Um, and it serves a function of, of taking away some of the emotional connection to a painful experience. And, and you know, I think folks that write about dissociation talk about people being more uh, uh, maybe having a, a proneness toward dissociation, even outside having traumatic experiences and things like that. But and I don't know if that's true or not, but I know for for folks who have uh, traumatic experiences and they have difficulty enduring those painful emotions that they can become detached during the experience in, in order to sort of cope with that experience. And if you do that a lot and you become good at it, it can become your go-to for emotional pain. So it, it's a skill. And, and if it works, you use it all the time. <laughs> so people and, that, and, yeah. And you're more likely to see it then if somebody's developed that skill, gotten a lot of practice at it, you're more likely to see it when they're distressed yes. because that's when they employ that skill. Right. I mean, I guess, I mean, going back to kind of the, that continuum of expression, I guess that's one of the things that when, when, when I've gotten questions about dissociation, like, again, that's kind of what folks are having in mind is that extreme end of the continuum, right? Where they're fully, if you will, immersed in an intrusive memory, like full on flashback, they're unaware of their present location, what, what's going mm -hmm. on around them currently. Like they're so into this intrusive memory that they're seeing, hearing, smelling, experiencing as though their memory of this event was happening again, right? They're, they're totally there and they may be unresponsive to the therapist. They may be maybe reenacting things going on in the memory. Like the, I'll tell you, I, I've had one, one client in probably all of my experience doing PE, who I think was, was kind of towards that end of the dissociative spectrum during some of our work together. And they were, you know, calling out orders that that they had at the time you know of their their traumatic experience that they were they were calling out during that time part of their memory they're kind of reenacting it but like it was really kind of encompassing right and, and like you said like we see dissociation happening in lots of different ways sometimes that emotional numbing sometimes you know they may have an awareness that they're in the office talking to a therapist and yet still maybe getting a little deeper involved in that memory. But I think it's, it's that extreme side that people are most worried about because it feels different, right? Like it's, it's almost like it has this, I don't even know if like this is the right word, but it almost has like the supernatural quality to it, right? Like something else is going on that we're, we have like maybe something not. took over the patient. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Like like, yeah. It has a it has a mystical quality. Like, like there's some entity that we don't have access yeah. to now that's in control or something. Yeah. And I think yeah. the next piece, the related piece of that, why it's so scary and why it comes up in consultation is that if it seems like it's something that's outside of our control and outside of the patient's control, then we don't know what to do with it. How do we right. put our patient back together when they dissociate and they get taken over by this demon or or they lose contact with reality? I think 
uh, clinicians are afraid to go anywhere near there because then they won't know how to get them back because they've been taken over. And so we, you know, maybe we as therapists are avoidant, right? We're, we're not, we're not, you know, asking our clients to continue to experience some of this distress because they're worried that we'll push them over the, some edge or that, you know, they'll, we'll push them into some dissociative reaction. And then, you know, nobody's getting better or, or you know, maybe that's the worry, or maybe the worry is somebody might get hurt. Maybe they'll reenact something that might actually injure somebody themselves. I, I mean, right. I, I think that those are some of those perhaps, you know, I mean, uh, unlikely, but, but still realistic, valid concerns that people might have. So if it's not a mythical thing <laughs> taking over and it's not a demon, what is it? So it's a skill it, or it's it's a it's a preferential skill. So maybe it's a, it's the absence of other skills that uh, allows this skill to become overdeveloped or be the preferential skill that people use. So I, I, I think when. Uh, people always just want to know, like, what do I do about dissociation? And and it really depends, right? Like everything else, like it depends how many other skills your client has. It depends how strongly they dissociate and what happens when they dissociate. If you have a client who walks around in everyday life and everyday life activities are triggering them to dissociate in ways where they lose time or become extremely upset and emotional and unable to function in public and things like that. Uh, the, the question really shouldn't be, how can I do PE with them right now? The question should be, how can I help them be safe in, as they walk around in their lives? Because we don't do PE with people who are uh, who who have other safety concerns that are are of, of are more ur urgent than uh, than their PTSD symptoms? And in that case, I would say a person who dissociates to that level needs to learn some skills to manage that dissociation before we engage in an activity like PE or even CPT, where the therapy itself is designed to come into contact with those difficult emotions. And they're going to need some skills when they get there to manage the difficult emotion. So, um, you know, the, what one of our colleagues, uh, Melanie Harned, uh, works with borderline personality disorder folks who also have PTSD, and she does a, the DBTPE protocol with them. And, and they have a really nice way of... Um, categorizing what you know whether you need to do the dbt pe protocol or whether you can just start pe and they really talk about the patients who need the dbt pe protocol as patients who are really in that category we were talking about where their level of dissociation their level of self-injurious behavior their level of coping with emotion that's difficult is so impaired that doing pe might be dangerous for them that they it would it would cause them to become so overwhelmed that they that would increase those behaviors. So they need to learn other skills before they move into the phase of doing PE. But when when we talk about most of the patients that we deal with, um, we're starting PE right away because our patients have some rudimentary skills, even if they're dissociative. In, in at times, they have some rudimentary skills or even some advanced skills that they can use to help with that. I think well, that's such an important distinction. Because um, the the way that you're talking about it is dissociation, which is how I've often thought about it, is dissociation is a skill mm -hmm. or, or, or a coping mechanism, even right. that they 
have <laughs> relied on because perhaps that was the only mechanism available at that time or the trauma was so intense that that that's all they could muster. Mm-hmm. Um, but it doesn't it also doesn't mean it's their only mechanism. And skill. Right. So it seems to me like part of that assessment should be where does the dissociation fit in? Are there other skills that the patient already has besides or mechanisms that the patient already has besides dissociation? Or do we need to build those in first? And to me, that's an important piece of the assessment. Right. And I think from from the, the point of view of some therapists, it, it, and, and this is not our point of view, but is that we should we should shore those skills up to max before we bring somebody into P.E., and nobody's got time for that. And in fact, we don't need that. We know that people can cope with the demands of prolonged exposure without a long preamble of skills and, and other other types of therapy before we get there. And, and But there is a small percentage of people who do need some skill building before they move in. Well, so I think that's one of the things that I think I've encountered too, is there's, there's concern or there's worry or questions from providers about, you know, how you might do that. How do you know where the line is about where, where do you need to build up skill first or where do you jump right in? Because I I don't know that it's necessarily the, the fear of somebody that they've got a client, they know they tend to dissociate because they've overlearned that skill. Like that's manifested itself in lots of different places. And so we kind of know we need to help this person develop some additional skills before we get into exposure work. If we're, if we're doing PE, Mm -hmm. sometimes the worry is that I'm not going to know until they're already there, right? Like we've started, like if we're doing PE, we started, we started a magical exposure and we were expecting them to feel distressed and we were expecting them to, you know, as their eyes are closed and they're revisiting their memory they're maybe they're breathing harder and they're feeling, you know, they're reporting suds, but kind of, it's this, this worry that out of the blue now, somebody's going to flip. All right. And, and, start dissociating and, and be unresponsive. And then what do we do if they're unresponsive to us anyway? Right. And so there's, there's that piece of it, but then there's also this piece of, well, the stuff we would typically do with somebody who tends to dissociate or whatever feels like it's antithetical to PE, right? It's just helping people to avoid better, I think is one way of looking at that. And so there's this worry that if we are addressing dissociation, maybe we're, we can't do PE anymore because it's kind of the opposite of PE where really, you know, like you were just saying, Melanie Harnett is just talking about, well, those two things can go together. We really can address this. And it's not, it's not that PE and and I think CPT as well, correct me if I'm wrong, Corinne, like that the protocols are so rigid that you can't make adjustments to, to deal with that, to address that, that that's kind of part of the beauty of, I guess, more modern protocol therapies is that there really is adjustments that can be made on the fly to, to deal with, to, to address when a client is having this, this kind of a reaction. So I, don't, I threw two things at you, so I don't know if, if you want to address them differently or what. Are you asking me or Corinne? Uh, either one. I mean, just and then kind of the idea, to, There's I, I know I threw two things. One is this worry that it's going to be unanticipated, come out of the blue, surprise us in the middle of therapy, and then what do we do? And then there's this other yeah. idea that if we're, you know, if, if it does happen, if it does come up, the stuff I'm you know, maybe not even used to doing, because I don't know that most therapists see a lot of people who are dissociating all the time, but the kinds of things that, that we may have learned how to deal with dissociation, maybe feel antithetical to this protocol we're trying to do. So what do you do then too? So two things. So, so I don't, there's a lot of things in there, Kevin. I don't know oh, if there's only two. I can't count so past two. That's there, the problem. So <laughs> dissociation 
it sort of gets a really bad rap and deservedly so in some cases. But some other things that get bad raps in therapy are avoidance Mm -hmm. and distraction. And, you know, in PE, we try to get people to not distract. We want them to focus on their. But when you think about it, all of those things occur on a continuum and all of them are functional behaviors at any given time. There are times when avoidance makes the most sense of anything at all. And in fact, one of the ways to distraction, one of the ways that I I think about dissociation is. just in a pure sense, it's not being in contact with something that you should be in contact with. So we're all sitting here talking. There are lots of things going on in the room around me. I'm focusing on mainly our conversation, but I'm also aware of sun coming in over here in the window. And, and, you know, there's a, but I'm not focused on, I'm not thinking about it. And it's not distracting me from the conversation. But I, if I were dissociative if i were to what happens when somebody dissociates is it's not that they lose contact with everything is that they're contacting one thing too closely mm-hmm. in a lot of instances so uh, this memory is i'm is i'm drawn into the it's almost like it's similar to over engagement but it's over engagement to the extreme so i'm i'm in i'm only able to focus on the painful experience that i'm having uh, as I'm processing this emotion and, and it's overwhelming to me. So it becomes non-productive and dissociation is the result. So what I, what I want to introduce in that situation is distraction. And, but I, I don't really call it distraction. I might call it prompting more so that they hear my voice more, or I might have them, you know, have some tactile distraction, like focusing on sens- body sensations that are happening in the room, like the feeling of the chair or the feet, the, something under their feet. Um, Things Melanie, we would sometimes call grounding, right? Grounding. Yeah. Some people mm-hmm. call it grounding. I think grounding is a really imprecise term. And I think yeah. it also sounds magical. So I don't tend to use it. <laughs> But I, but I also think that th- we're talking about some of the same things. Melanie's done some really cool things with folks that are highly dissociative, almost to the extreme where she she will have them, uh, like, you know, I will have people sometimes lean forward. So they have a little bit more physical uh, tension in their body rather than kind of leaning back into a recliner where they're sort of there's nothing they have to do other than focus on this emotion. When you lean forward, you have to kind of use your muscles to hold yourself upright a little bit. Melanie will have people stand to do their imaginal exposure. And if that's not enough, sometimes she's had people stand on a balance board. I've heard of standing on one foot, kind of the same concept. Yeah, or standing on one foot. And it's not that this is, this is not distracting enough to bring them totally out of the processing of the memory or the, the recounting of the memory, but it's enough of a distraction that their body has to be doing something else while they're doing this. So it's like there there are several processes going on at once, which is what normally we're doing when we're living our lives or talking about things or engaging in any kind of activity. And so so, you know, distraction even isn't a bad skill if you know. And and so when you think about it from that point of view, um, we can uh, we can use distraction sometimes to to pull people back in and the distraction of our voice, the distraction of tactile sensations, the distraction of physical tension in the body. Uh, she's used uh, ice water so that people, you know, and and so there are lots of things like that, that that you can do to help people who are dissociative. But remember, even all of these things we're talking about right now, those are extreme forms of dissociation that are going to require those right. kinds of things. Mm-hmm. 
for most of our clients, prompting a little more. Now, what I would do even before that is if I've noticed my client is dissociative or tends to dissociate when they talk about their traumatic experience, I'm going to know that before we do imaginal exposure because I've already assessed them and I've assessed how they're able to tell me about the trauma in the first place. And, you know, how hard was it for them? What did they look like? Were they able, was, was there any emotion going on when they told about it or were they really uh, detached from that? Were they numb even when they're tongue? So I, I have some anticipation of how that's going to go even before we do imaginal exposure. Can I add to that really quickly? Yes, Cause I yes. think that that actually goes back to Kevin's other or initial question, which I think is really relevant of, um, you know, people, clinicians worry that the dissociation is going to come out of nowhere. So you're yeah. going to start PE and all of a sudden or you're going to start CPT yeah. or, or any treatment and suddenly find out that your client is dissociative. And I think, Kelly, you're making the point that I wanted to to make, which is that there are you will have signs you because you don't jump into yeah. PE the first day right. that you meet a patient or CPT. <laughs> so you have cues, including exactly what you're you're saying, which is how do they talk to you about the trauma initially? How do they talk to you about their history? How do they talk to you about their symptoms? And many patients will actually tell you outright, you know, I'm walking my dog and all of a sudden I'm back in that room or I'm watching TV and all of a sudden I'm back on the field. So they will tell you in different ways the types of dissociation, if any, that they engage in. So it's not that surprise that I think some clinicians worry about, Kevin, that you described. Yeah. And I just yeah. wanted to make yeah. sure I got that in that in there. No, I think it's such a good point is that the a lot of times, I mean, we talk about our clients having a lot of anticipatory anxiety. We talk about how that can really sometimes even be worse than the anxiety of you know, reapproaching some of these things. And I think us as therapists have that too, right? This anticipatory anxiety that our client's going to fall apart or, you know, discombobulate while we're doing imaginal exposure or other kinds of interventions. And and I think the point you're making is is a huge one that this doesn't happen nearly as often as we worry about it. And when it does happen, we tend to have a heads up if we're paying attention that this person has learned the skill, employs it to manage some of their distress. And so it, it it's very, very rare, if at all, that it happens that it's just literally out of nowhere. You had no idea that this was coming and then there's nothing that we can do about that. Right. Can I, can I ask Corinne too, like, I feel like we've been talking a lot about PE and like, you know, providers express this concern in consultation. Like if I start imaginal, that's when it's going to happen. Like from a CPT standpoint, when you're doing consultation, when does some of this provider um, anxiety or questions about dissociation? Are there certain, uh, you know, parts of CPT or moments in CPT or, or not really? Just curious your thoughts. Yeah. That's a great question. There are, I mean, frankly, I'll say in the training, as soon as we say that CPT is a trauma-focused treatment, immediately somebody asks, well, what about <laughs> right. with somebody who's dissociative, right? So it's from the very outset when you recognize that CPT is still a trauma-focused treatment, even if it's not exposure-based. Um, but then it, it, the question definitely comes up um, when it's time to write the impact statement, which happens at the end of the first session when, for those who are not familiar, you're asking the patient to write why the event happened, not the details of what happened, but why the event happened. So anxiety has come up there. And then for those of you um, who don't already know, there are two different versions of CPT. There's CPT with a written trauma narrative and CPT without a written trauma narrative. The standard at this point is actually without the written trauma narrative for a lot of reasons that I 
don't know are, that are relevant to this particular discussion. Well, that's if, like a whole series of episodes, a, right? Whole other episode. <laughs> but CPT with the written account, if you choose to do that with clients, then when they're going to write the details of the event in sessions three and four, of course, right. that's a point where clinicians get anxious. Interestingly enough, guess which approach tends to be best for those folks who tend to have a lot of dissociation? Actually, having them write the written account leads to greater benefit. Research I was going to guess. You didn't let me guess. I'm sorry. Get away. Let's <laughs> rewind. Let me write it. Yes, for five points. <laughs> Which version? Yeah. Well, and, and interestingly, though, too, even in the version without the written trauma narrative, at least, and, and certainly correct me if I'm wrong, but there's still a lot of work around, you know, how is that memory showing up in day-to-day, you know, activities and, and you know, recognizing, identifying what are some of those unhelpful cognitions related to that and how that shows up too. And so I imagine there's a, a number of opportunities, if you will, for distress and anxiety to go up and then for people to fall back to what they know, what, you know, what is maybe perhaps worked a little bit to manage some of their distress if, if they're so inclined. Exactly right. And I feel like you could substitute any other treatment. We're not talking about EMDR. We're not talking about written exposure therapy, but all of those have yeah. the same the same notion, right? Because it's trauma-focused treatments and then there's always the risk of dissociation. Which I guess maybe moves us to actionable intel and what we do about it now that we have talked around it. <laughs> right. Corinne, you, re- you read my mind. I, it was magical. Well, and it, so, yes, you know, as, as in every episode, um, you know, as Corinne just said, like, we don't want to just talk about it. We want to try and, you know, give, give our listeners, our, our colleagues, our friends, um, some, some tools or some things to shore up, you know, sort of feel more secure around this or learn more about it. Um, you know, what are a few things that you would recommend providers do, you know, in this, in this sort of, um, uh, I'm not summarizing it very well. What, what should they do to learn more about dissociation and what to do about it if it pops up clinically um, and, and move it from mystery and mystification to skills and behaviors we can help shape to make EBPs more successful? I guess you're assuming that Kelly is just not going to treat all of our patients for us. That's not the answer. I think one of the things I would like people to do when they work with trauma patients is assess them really well. (laughs) And that might sound like, oh, duh, well, of course we should do that. But I think people don't assess dissociation very well and they don't have their sort of, and, and, and I don't mean like giving a DES, which is a great instrument and people can give that, but I mean more just listening to how your client speaks. As Kevin was talking about earlier, like, is it easy for them to talk about it? Do, do they look detached when they're telling you about the experience that they've had? And when they do, you know, ask them how they feel about that. You know, do, do you feel detached from that experience as you talk about it? Does that happen at other times? And when it happens, how long does it last? What do you do to kind of get back into contact with reality? And and many patients will have answers for that. And so those are what you do in therapy too. So uh, when, for example, someone's doing imaginal exposure and I've already assessed them and I know that they have a tendency to dissociate, I might say, before we start the imaginal exposure, you know, if you feel like you're, you know, backing off from this memory and maybe dissociating a bit as you have done in the past, 
how about if you um, hold your finger up? Can they predict? And this is something I, I, I usually assess with people who are dissociative is can they predict when they're when it's going to happen? Mm-hmm. Most can. Uh, they know the things that cause them to dissociate and and they can sort of feel that it, it doesn't take them by surprise either. Sort of it can feel like it sneaks up on them if you're not paying attention. But if you do a chain analysis and look at what happens prior to dissociation, you can see the things that start to predict it. And the, the client can do this, too. So they can hold their finger up. I can then talk more, prompt more. I can say, why don't you open your eyes for this part and talk talk through this part with your eyes open. And I can I can use my voice, I can use my prompts to kind of keep them more present. Whereas with another client, I might be more silent and not not be interrupting their narrative so much. Um, so assess well so that you can kind of predict what to do. If you have a client who doesn't have skills and does can't predict it, then don't start doing imaginal exposure until you've done some work with them to to help them develop the skill of being able to predict when they're going to dissociate. So if they say, I absolutely don't know when it happens, it just takes me by surprise. Then before you go to PE, the treatment plan needs to address how can you predict this more and be able to um, be more functional when it starts to happen? And how can you uh, recognize the signs so that you can back off from what's happening and not dissociate? Because we don't, the answer to people say, what do I do if my client dissociates during imaginal exposure? My answer is always don't let them dissociate during imaginal exposure. (laughs) Don't let it get that far. Don't do it. Don't let it go that far. Watch for the signs, pull them back before that happens. And the same is true for overengagement, by the way, but dissociation as well. We don't want our clients to overengage because it takes a while to clean that up and pack that all back together. Whereas if you prevent it happening in the first place, because you know the signs and your client knows the signs and you're kind of working your way through it, then it's a much, it feels safer for the client. The dissociation doesn't feel safe for clients. They don't like the feeling of it. They, it, it feels destabilizing and therapists feel the same way. So, so best not to have that happen. But if it happens, it's not a disaster. It, you can help walk that back and you can use whatever happened during the session that caused the dissociation to do a chain analysis and find out what is it about what we were talking about that caused you to check out? When did you first notice that you were checking out? Did it happen very suddenly or did it happen in in a couple of seconds? And can you go through what happened in those seconds? And, And when you know the answers to those questions, you can work with that situation in the future to prevent it happening. How do we help our listeners or providers out there to develop that skill, right? Because one of the other things that tends to happen a lot, at least with new PE therapists, is that where that line is feels like we get there a lot sooner than it actually is, right? Like for, for most clients, not I'm not talking about just our dissociative clients, but for most clients, they can handle more than perhaps we think they can when we first start doing PE or other kind of trauma-focused therapies. And so part of the 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 learning that how to develop this new skill is, you know, trying to help our clients stay engaged a little further than they think they can go, maybe a little further than we think they can go, but then balancing that with this idea of not letting them get to the point of dissociation. Do we have like resources we can point somebody to, to like, how do they build this skill of recognizing it? Because it doesn't happen a lot. So it's not like you just kind of naturally develop the skill over time after you see a lot of clients, right? Yeah, I think that's true. And, and, so what can people do to become more familiar with it? I, I think I think there are 
there are articles you can read on dissociation. We can we can include some with the show notes if you want <laughs> uh, that that help people kind of think about it in 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 a less mystical way. Um, but one of the best resources that I've come across recently, and it's not, it, it, it's not, it's relatively new, but it's not super new is Melanie's book. Melanie Harnett has recently written a book, uh, about DBT PE. It's the protocol. Uh, and, um, even though this form of PE is not applicable, applicable for all clients, I think the way that she breaks things down so carefully for those most disturbed clients is really helpful even when you're working with less disturbed clients because it it helps you think through what's happening for them. So, you know, if you can work, if you can read her book and, and look at some of the things she does with some of these really severe clients, you don't have to do quite that much, quite that that much work with the less disturbed clients, but the same, the skills are the same. And so I, I think that's like, it, it's a tiny resource in one book that has a whole lot of stuff that would be helpful for people working with anyone who has PTSD, um, even, even some of the most uh, difficult clients. So like we always do, we're going to put links and everything in the show notes for, for folks who've been listening along and hearing references to articles and the books and things like that and resources. So we'll have those in the show notes. Just wanted to make mention, not as a plug or anything, but the, the name of the book by Melanie Harned that Kelly's referring to is called Treating Trauma in Dialectical Behavior Therapy. So it, if you're looking for a book called DBTPE, you won't find it, but it's called Treating Trauma and Dialectical Behavior Therapy by Melanie S. Harned. And then her website, uh, we'll put in the show notes too, is dbtpe.org. So I think that um, very naturally brings us to the point of summarizing and wrapping up the, the episode, which, I mean, I'm just going to step right in as first-time host and try and Go see how terrible of a job I do. But I love this discussion, um, getting all of our different perspectives on this. We've had different experiences and, and different backgrounds of training and experience. So I feel like we've got a nice full picture of dissociation here. And if I was going to summarize, I would say um, that uh, some of the things that I heard or uh, that we talked about was first the importance of assessing as a clinician. So um, taking the time at the outset, not just to ask dissociation specific questions or using dissociation specific tools like the DES, but just noticing clients' reactions to what you're already asking, noticing their answers to the questions that you're already asking, noting how they react when you talk about the trauma, and also what they tell you about their own everyday experience, because you can often hear plenty of signs of dissociation through your assessment. Then work with your client to figure out how aware they are of their dissociative tendency. So if they are quite familiar with it and they have a sense of when they're doing it, you can work pretty easily with them to predict when it's going to happen, what some of the warning signs are, when they notice is changing in them, or what they notice might be triggering that dissociative episode. Of course, if they're not as aware of it or as knowledgeable of it, then your job as a clinician becomes a little bit harder to, to really work more directly in helping them predict that helping them with that chain analysis that Kelly described. Um, 
as we discussed, as a clinician, you want to have your repertoire of skills that you're ready to utilize when you have a sense that your client tends to be dissociative. And that um, might include those techniques that we lump under grounding, the umbrella term grounding. Um, of course, we also have additional resources and materials like the Melanie Harned book that we've noticed and DBT and PE materials in general. We've, um, Kelly's mentioned some of the techniques that we use as part of PE. When we have kind of an over-engaged or even outright dissociative client, I would also stress from the CPT side, consider CPT plus A, consider using the written narrative if you're doing CPT. And finally, don't forget that we're here for consultation. So you can actually access all of us either in the PE CLC or the CPT monthly virtual office hours, which we can put links to that in the show yep. notes as well. Correct? How do I Correct. do that, guys? Anybody? Wow. Yes. She's hired. She's hired. Oh, she can I'm stay in. around. You're I'm in. in. Uh, no, truly fabulous job. I think it, it's exciting to be back for season four, and this is a great way to kick it off. Kelly, thank you so much for coming back again. Uh, and Corinne, we just can't quit you. So we look forward to having you uh, join the join us in the host seats here. Um, and it, welcome back to all of you listeners uh, that we are, are glad you've joined us back for season four. And we look forward to uh, you joining our next episode. And thanks again for listening in about dissociation. And we want to hear from you all, like you are listeners, like tell us, you know, tell us what you want to hear about. What are the questions that you have or reactions uh, to other episodes that you've heard so far? So we'd love your feedback. We want you to participate. If you'd like to even have your voice be a part of a future episode, leave us a voicemail at speakpipe.com slash CDPP4P. That's uh, speakpipe.com slash PD. I messed it up. Um speakpipe.com slash cdpp4p so that's center for deployment psychology practical for your practice and uh, you can leave a voicemail right there that if we have your permission we'd be happy to include in a future episode too as we're addressing the questions you're bringing up so be part of the conversation join us awesome thanks everyone and and have a great day thanks for listening to practical for your practice please feel free to subscribe like and share until next time 